The joy of Get Ready With Me videos, activist slogans at the Met Gala receive mixed reviews, and should artists' estates be releasing music after they've died? We're Jasmine and Maggie, and you're listening to Culture Club, our weekly chat about pop culture, current affairs, the internet, and our lives. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people are the traditional custodians of this land we are on today. We would like to pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging. We'd also like to celebrate their rich history of culture and storytelling that we can all learn from. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Maggie, one of the highlights of my week this week... 5pm on a Friday, I was literally refreshing the website. (laughs) The new Sex Education Season 3 is out now. Have you watched any yet? Hooray! Yes, I have. I have watched the first two episodes, so we can talk about it a little bit. Spoiler free, of course. Um, But how good. Like, what a nice treat for us all. Oh my god. It just lifted my spirit so much, and I've actually been, like, rationing it and, like, only watching one episode a day. I watched the third Mm. one yesterday and it's so easy. Like sometimes I'll start watching the start of the next one and I literally have to like pull myself away and exit out of the tab because I'm like, I don't want it to be over too soon. There's only eight episodes. So you've got to like really savor it. Yeah. So you were like me and my little sister, Katie, right? So she's like, I want to make it last as long as possible. And then she was talking to one of her friends because um, for uni, there's a lot of, oh my God, I just forgot about an assignment during a few days. <laughs> it's like a group assignment that we have not started. <laughs> okay. oh, no, I'm so sorry. It's in, it's in a week and a half. Never mind. I like full on just... <laughs> freaked out for a second okay sorry back on track the reason why I brought that up is because it's kind of hardcore uni exam season so Katie was like um she's got some friends that were like oh yeah I had to watch it all in one day so I could get back focused on my uni work (laughs) what do you mean eight hours of tv oh my gosh well I don't know I like binging sometimes I like binging with other people um but if I'm just watching something by myself I try to ration it out but sex education this season is even better than the other seasons like it's I feel like it's added on another layer and it's just it's just so good for someone who hasn't watched any of it how would you sell it to them yeah, good point. Lol, just speaking as if everyone knows. We love sex education. <laughs> yeah. We love comprehensive sex education in schools, everyone. That we don't have in Australia. Thank you. True. Um, okay, so how would you sell it to someone? Sex Education is a series, a British-made series on Netflix about a group of teenagers at a fictional high school. And in the first season, two of the students start a um, kind of – underground sex education club if you want to say that so basically other students can go to them with sex problems that they're having because one of the boys the main characters Otis Milburn's mother is a sexologist and sex therapist so he is very like well educated on relationships and sex and stuff and then the series revolves around them and their friendships and it's just so important, I think, for everyone to watch, but especially younger people. Mm. And 
Adam, oh my God, I just want to give Adam the biggest hug in this series God, especially. I know. So much character development. Um, but yeah, loving it so much. Yes, that was one of my favorite storylines that I was interested in seeing how it would progress in this um, series. So oh, very exciting. Such a nice watch um, currently. But yes, I can't wait to watch the rest of it. I can't believe there's only eight episodes. So that's kind of sad. But it has been a big week of new releases as well. The long-awaited Lil Nas X album has also dropped. I can't believe he's a regular. He has a regular spot on Culture Club. I swear we talk about him every second week. Do you like the album? Yes, um, I've only shuffled it a little bit. You were the one, you messaged me and let me know it was out because I it totally just went over my head. But I do like it. It is very quite pop heavy. But from what I've heard, I am enjoying it and I'm keen to dig more into it. But what about you? I am loving it as well. Did you know that it's called Montero because that's his first name? Yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. We, yeah, we brought it up. On the music video, yeah. But then I forgot. <laughs> no, and then I saw a thing yeah. again about, um, yeah, some tweet being like, oh, I just realized. And also he's like two months younger than you. No, don't. I know. <laughs> he he's so young I don't know how he's done so much yeah a short time and and he's you know he only rocketed to stardom with Old Town Road and that was very recent so a couple years ago yeah so my favorite tracks off the album so far are Sun Goes Down I think Lost in the Citadel I like as well because it's very like 2000s rocky vibe like I feel like Machine Gun Kelly would have released that song and number three would probably have to be Scoop with Doja Cat because I'm a Doja Cat stan. Mm, love her. Um, I also really like Void. I do like a softer, chiller song. I think he's got such an amazing voice and I understand it's probably like a stylized choice, but it is heavily auto-tuned the whole album, right? Mm. Um, which kind of put me off a little bit, but I think it's the vibe. Yeah. Another topic that we spoke about last week that we are going to speak about again this week is that the Activist series has actually been turned into a documentary. Last week we chatted about The Activist, which is a Hunger Games-like reality TV show hosted by Asha, Priyanka Chopra, Jonas, and Julianne Hoff, which pits activists against each other. Yeah, I'm actually quite surprised to hear this news because I think we get on our mics every week and kind of criticize <laughs> one thing or another that happens in the pop culture sphere, but nothing really changes. So it's kind of cool to see that internet backlash can make change and it's kind of made something productive as well, not just us kind of tearing down something without cause or just, I don't know, well, the same thing happened with the OnlyFans story that we did a few weeks Very ago, true. like within two days, it was out of date, which was great news because it meant that um, sex workers got to use a platform again. But yeah, it's so interesting how quickly things move. But the producers of the activists have changed direction. There was a statement made by the production company CBS and Global Citizen, which is the um, international advocacy organization that is also co-producing the show. And the statement said, 
The activist was designed to show a wide audience the passion, long hours, and ingenuity that activists put into changing the world, hopefully inspiring others to do the same. However, it has become apparent the format of the show, as announced, distracts from the vital work these incredible activists do in their communities every day. The push for global change is not a competition and requires a global effort. Okay, interesting, because I almost want to give them the benefit of the doubt, because while there is an advocacy organization co-producing the show, maybe they were like, oh, like we love advocacy, but maybe we don't know too much about the film <laughs> film and TV space. Maybe we do need to inject some The Voice drama into it and that sort of format to make this popular. So I don't know. Mm. But it is very cool to see this feedback being taken on board. There was a lot of feedback as well towards the judges, especially to Julianne Huff, who actually was, it was resurfaced that she had donned blackface at a Halloween party in 2013. And Julianne actually made a Instagram statement, classic, um, which was actually, I think, quite well written, but we'll read a little bit out now. After the press release announcing the activist, I heard you say that the show was performative, promoted pseudo-activism over real activism, felt tone-deaf, like Black Mirror, The Hunger Games, and that the hosts weren't qualified to assess activism because we are celebrities and not activists. I heard you say that there was hypocrisy in the show because at the root of activism is a fight against capitalism and the trauma that it causes so many people and that the show itself felt like a shiny capitalistic endeavor. Another part I liked was when she said, quote, I do not claim to be an activist and wholeheartedly agree that the judging aspect of the show missed the mark and furthermore that I am not qualified to act as a judge. I've definitely not addressed all the different valuable feedback about what the show missed and my missteps. I want you to know that I am still listening because this is a messy and uncomfortable conversation and I'm committed to being here for all of it. I do not have all the answers yet. I've shared your concerns as well as my own with the powers that be who I believe have listened. I have faith and confidence in the beautiful people that I've worked with who will make the right choice and do the right thing moving forward, not just for the show, but for the greater good. So it was nice, I think, for them or for Julian to kind of like recognize and acknowledge I guess the feedback that they received from like the whole internet Mm. um so it'll be interesting to see what they do with it because from what I read it seems that it's already been recorded and it's being released next month how can they go from it being this reality show into a documentary but we'll have to see So the Night of All Nights, High School Musical (laughs) reference, in fashion was last week. The famous Met Gala took over our screens and we got to see the theme of In America, a lexicon of fashion. There was so much mixed emotion on the internet of people enjoying the outfits, Mm. people thinking that it was so basic, people saying that they'd had more than a year to get ready for this. But I think that's what the Met Gala does as well. It starts these conversations. Um, Aside from like the main red carpet, there was quite a lot of behind the scenes content created. 
Yeah, and I actually think that makes a lot of sense because I feel like the average person doesn't really care about Fashion Week, but I feel like because Met Gala is more about celebrity and entertainment, um, I don't know, it's so fun. I feel like it's a little bit weirdly more inclusive for people to just watch, right? You don't have to really understand fashion to just be like, oh, this is fun, I like that, or I don't like that. Mm. Um, and I do feel like having all this fun YouTube video behind the scene content adds to it. Yeah, so Emma Chamberlain, our fave, was interviewing celebrities on the red carpet, which was very exciting. I watched a couple, um, Mm. but I actually watched her Vogue get ready with me um, before she gets on the red carpet and really enjoyed that. It was nice to kind of see her a bit more chatty and get all dressed up and it felt quite voyeuristic, but also like you're watching your friend's close friend story. Yeah. Oh, that's such a nice way of putting it. Um, I feel like you could feel her excitement and nerves mm. because she hadn't been to prom. So this was kind of her prom. And obviously this is such a massive night, but the whole thing gave me, yeah, preparing for formal vibes, you know, they're like gossiping with the makeup um, and glam people. And, you know, she was talking about who she was excited to see. Uh, she covered her hand, but she covered her mouth with her hand, but pretty sure she said Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I did not like Timothy's outfit. I feel like no, he's worn the same so thing ugly. for every bloody award show or anything lately. It's just like a, a tux with sneakers. Like, okay, can we get something new, please? <laughs> Timmy. It kind of gave me a mini ick towards him. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, he is so good looking. And other times I'm like, you look like a 16-year-old Victorian child. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I definitely get it. And he's got like that vacant look in his eyes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anyone home? And, of course, um, Kendall Jenner was carrying around her famous film camera. She's done that in years gone by and always makes for the best pictures. And I feel like it humanizes celebrities a lot seeing their film pictures and seeing them all drinking together. It's also so odd when you see, like, a bunch of random celebrities that you don't think would exist in the same sphere in the same picture. Like, I don't know, for an example, Leo DiCaprio and Kylie Jenner or something. Troy Savan actually posted one of him, the actress Zoe Dutch, and Addison Ray. All the comments were so brutal. I, I think we said this last week as well, but like Addison Ray is growing on me a little bit. And I think people are so cruel towards her. Like we saw what happened with Britney. Sorry, this is going to a different topic. But all the comments were like, no, Troy, don't stand with Addison. It's like, Oh my, oh god. my god. Anyway, this is not high school. It's not high. Yeah, it felt very high school. But seeing all Troy's behind the scenes stuff, um yeah, it was nice, I think. So fun. Like the low quality selfies as well. So yeah, Timmy was with Billie Eilish and whoever uh, whoever else and that was so fun to see. But did you watch any of the other Vogue Get Ready with Me videos apart from Emma's? No, just Emma's. Oh my god, no. That was good. I watched all of them. <laughs> Katie and I were like, autoplay, autoplay. Oh. Like, we, we watched them all. Um, Sean Mendes and Camilo Cabello's was really interesting and quite cute and fun. He's such a funny boy. He had like a healer to start off the session and he's so soft-spoken and really calming. Like when he was speaking, I'm like, I'm so calmed by you. <laughs> and then Camilla's like this like wild fireball who's like super excited and it was, yeah, it was oh. fun to watch. What do you mean by healer? Like he had a spiritual healer in there with him. Yeah. Ah. That would, yeah, just at the start, it was like a little like 
gong noise and like some sort of smoking ceremony. I don't know about the cultural appropriation element of this, but it was very calming. Wow. Of course, our other fave gal, Olivia Rodrigo, made her Met Gala debut. And yeah, she had her own Vogue video that was super cute as well. Well, that is like the fun aspect and the kind of accessible human part of the night. But there was a little bit of controversy. Of course, there was a Nicki Minaj anti-vax comments, which was so funny oh my god so fun we won't go into that everyone's probably heard about it but what I want to talk about was the kind of activism that we saw on the red carpet they caused a mixed reaction from many the two most obvious ones I would say are Cara Delevingne donning the white vest that read peg the patriarchy in red capital letters and U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who wore a beautiful white sleeveless dress that had tax the rich splashed out in red letters. What did you first think when you saw this? We actually haven't spoken about this. I know you wrote a piece for Refinery29. Okay, so I love this. This is a journey of learning for everybody because I'll be honest, I'm going to be honest, when I first saw these um, looks, because I was kind of following the Met Gala quite closely and I was super excited with each celebrity appearance. I was like, oh, cool. Like, this is fun. I was like, oh, I like these. That's what I originally thought, right? And then I ended up writing a piece, like just a quick news hit about it. And I was quite um, indulgent for both of these um, women and I was like, you know, it's cool to see slogans and like I guess politics make their way into fashion. This obviously isn't the first time this has happened and I do think it's a nice, I guess, frame in time. Like it quite, I think it kind of captures a 2021 mood. But, yeah, that's kind of where I left it, you know. And then, of course, after I hit publish, a lot of other information kind of um, came afresh and came known. So we'll be talking a lot about that. But anyway, what were your first initial thoughts? With Kara's, I was kind of like, okay. It was reminding me a lot of Dior's We Should All Be Feminist slogan t-shirt. Oh, my God. True. And it was designed by Dior. So, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Oh, there you go. Okay. I was also like, she's making a statement and I think that's cool. AOCs, I was a little bit more confused and I actually didn't really want to comment on it. Um, a couple of people asked my opinion, like when she first came on the runway and I actually was like, I, no, I want to sit and think about this for a while because mm. I did feel like it was a bit performative at first. I was like, I don't know. Part of me was like, I hope she's kind of, she's in the right room, I guess. It's full of rich people. But Mm. I was also like, oh, is this a bit performative, I guess. Um, But then I read a few different opinions and learned more information about the dress and about why she was invited as a politician. And I changed my opinion. Yes, but more on that later because we'll start off with Kara. I think it's good to kind of separate the two. I think most people were just lumping them together in the same category, but let's actually dive into the nitty and gritty of both. So as we mentioned, I was like, 
yeah, whatever, like kind of cool with Kara's um, outfit. But I found it really kind of off-putting when I watched her little mini interview on the red carpet um, and she was asked, you know, tell us about this. And she was like, it's about women empowerment, gender equality. It's a bit like stick it to the man. And then she kind of, you know, pointed at the word peg and she was like, if anyone doesn't know what this word means, you're going to have to look it up because I'm not going to explain it right now. So it was very like off the cuff, like, ha ha ha, like not very thought out. And um, I don't know, very confused, I felt. Right. So there was no kind of like, there was no, I'm saying this because the act of pegging means this. And therefore, I think we should like fuck the patriarchy kind of thing. It was just like very lighthearted. She literally was like gender equality, women empowerment. You know what I mean? Just saying random buzzwords, (laughs) which made me think that this was so strange. Mm. Like she was just reading out Instagram hashtags of under feminist. (laughs) Hashtag girl boss. Interesting. Okay. I'm really glad that some other people pointed out other problematic aspects of her slogan that she was wearing. So sex worker and writer Tilly Lawless wrote on her Instagram story, what is with brands and putting these completely nonsensical statements on on things under the guise of being political? You can see how empty the actual intentions are behind it because there's no real thought behind it, just catchy alliteration. We're told that being anally penetrated is the most degrading, emasculating thing a straight man can do, so pegging the patriarchy must be somehow asserting our power as women within it. Dot, 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 it isn't. Pegging isn't inherently feminist. It's just a sexual act like any other. This is really just saying, give pleasure to the patriarchy. (laughs) Then it came out that the Peg the Patriarchy slogan was actually created by Luna Matatis in 2015 and copyrighted in 2018. Luna said on Instagram, while I'm giddy that Peg the Patriarchy made it to the Met Gala, Cara Delevingne, co-owner of Laura DiCarlo, a sex toy company, tried to pull it off as their own. No credit to me, the creator and owner of the trademark. This happens to small artists all the time, so much so that I have an assistant whose job includes finding and tracing people printing and selling Peg the Patriarchy. Remember that as a fat, queer, person of colour, I am working twice as hard just to do what I'm already amazing at. From censorship to patriarchy to racism, all biz barriers specific to my social location. What's grossest for me is the media interviews, with Kara blatantly owning it as if it wasn't already owned. Sound familiar? Coughs in colonialism. I had no idea that that was even a slogan, you know? Well, neither. I think that's why there's a blurred line here because it's not as well known as F the patriarchy. So that's why I think it can be copyrighted. Mm. Had you heard it before? No, I'd heard, yeah, fuck the patriarchy, um, but not peg. And I, I agree with Tilly in that. I was like, why is pegging like bad or worse? Like just say fuck the patriarchy because we say fuck in terms of like fuck off, fuck you. It's yeah. kind of like more of that angry word. Whereas I was like, pegging is just, yeah, like what Tilly said, it's just a sex act. It would just be like, blow the patriarchy or whatever. It doesn't add any other layer to me. Yeah, I loved what Tilly said, but I also think it's good to give Luna the space to kind of state why it's important to her, why, like what 
peg the patriarchy means to her. Mm. So speaking to Refinery29 US, she said, I wanted to start these conversations about the ways in which equity is connected to our empowerment, but also our erotic side. We play a lot with fantasy and power, and we can use those metaphors in our social activism. It really is a metaphor. Pegging is a fantasy about anal penetration, but it's not so much about anal sex. It's not so much about cis men, because patriarchy has no gender. It's a system and it affects everybody. We're all in a position of either power or subservient under patriarchy, which doesn't work for anybody. So peg the patriarchy is kind of saying, let's subvert this. Let's not obey and be subservient. Let's use this fantasy metaphor to shake things up. What are your thoughts? That is Luna's opinion. And obviously she has created this and really believes in it. Um, But I see where she's coming from. But I, yeah, and I feel bad that Kara kind of co-opted it. That's yucky. And especially because Kara, like, with Kara, she's not just a celebrity, a model who has just, like, been scouted on the street. She comes from, like, a really wealthy family. Like, Mm. she's, like, third, fourth generation, almost nobility in England. So sometimes when she does this kind of 2010 Tumblr vibe, I'm a bit Mm. like, okay, Kara. (laughs) I don't know if that sounds bad, but yeah. Like it would have worked then, but I think we have grown and Mm. our understandings of feminism have deepened and, you know, just catchy catch (laughs) catchphrases, I guess. Um, Yeah, but we are talking about it. We wouldn't be talking about what does pegging mean to the patriarchy if Kara hadn't had worn that vest. So I guess it is starting conversations. Moving on to AOC, whose Cruella-like gown caused quite a stir, um, actually, surprisingly, from both the right and left. Mm. People were quick to point out that the individual tickets to go to the Met were $35,000 US dollars. So that's approximately 48000 Australian dollars, and that the dress was probably really expensive. But AOC defended her message and presence on Instagram, saying... Before, in capitals, anybody starts wilding out, NYC elected officials are regularly invited to and attend the Met due to our responsibilities in overseeing our city's cultural institutions that serve the public. I was one of several in attendance. Dress is borrowed from Brother Veli's, and AOC also pointed out that she worked with Aurora James, who is a sustainably focused black woman immigrant designer. Yeah, so when AOC was interviewed on the red carpet, she said, We really started having a conversation, talking about Aurora James, about what it means to be a working class woman of colour at the Met. And we said we can't just play along, but we need to break the fourth wall and challenge some of the institutions. And I really like this quote by Aurora James to Vogue, which said, We can never get too comfortable in our seats at the table once they've been given. We must always continue to push ourselves, push our colleagues, push the culture and push the country forward. Fashion is changing. America is changing. And as far as this scene goes, I think Alexandria and I are great embodiment of the language fashion needs to consider adding to the general lexicon as we work towards a more sustainable, inclusive and empowered future. 
So I know at the beginning of this segment, you talked about how you had some complicated and mixed feelings about this. Um, and obviously it's been like almost a week since the Met happened now and your thoughts have probably been stewing <laughs> for that time. So where have you settled? What do you feel? I feel like the left side of politics ripped her to shreds way harder than she needed to be as well. I feel like she was getting it from both sides, which was unfair. But I agree. And like hearing Aurora's explanation as well, I think what they've done is good. And it would be weirder if AOC had showed up in like a diamond encrusted ball gown and just pretended that she wasn't this like elected official. And especially when you hear AOC's story of you know, working two jobs as a waitress in New York City and um, her background, I think it's really cool. And I can see why people thought it was a bit, you know, in the way we were just talking about Kara. I feel like people were giving the same criticism of like, it's girl bots, it's Tumblr vibes. But tax the rich is becoming a mainstream slogan because we keep saying it over and over. And to wear that dress in front of millionaires and probably billionaires were there. I mean, Grimes was there. I hope she, like, went up and shoved her ass <laughs> in Grimes' face. Um, I think it's pretty bold and it's gotten the whole world talking and we do need to tax the rich in, it, like, every country basically. So what about you? Yeah, it's been an interesting week because I think I've had quite a few conversations about this dress and I'm almost, like, quite tired of mm. it. Um, but I definitely think it's a conversation worth having. I think overall I am pretty annoyed at like the intense backlash she got. I understand a lot of people do have problems with her politics, um, especially on the left as well. But I think putting that aside, it's like, okay, like what do you want? Number one, she could refuse to attend, but what does that do? You know, some rich, famous person would just take her space and nothing would have happened. It would be a wasted opportunity. And like you just mentioned, do we want her to wear this like nice normal gown and also be criticized for that? Mm. You know, I think just at the crux of this, AOC is a smart woman. She doesn't think she's bloody changing the world because she's worn this dress. That's what her day job is for. That's when she works in law reform, etc. But it sparks conversation. Um, and I think it was worn in front of the people who needed to hear it. She's not out like in the bloody slums wearing this, <laughs> you know. Um, she's telling it to the people who need to hear it the most and she's probably making them uncomfortable. And that's the point. I think having conversations like this, we've all probably experienced it to a bloody smaller extent, but having conversations around race or climate change or or gay rights without like family or people closer to us. It's a hard thing. And I think this is maybe a version of her, um, of herself doing something like that. Mm. I also want to stress because I understand that a lot of people are like, it's performative. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of the point. Obviously it's performative. Like what else can it be? It's also at the Met. Everything is a performance, right? That's all. What else is she going to do? Play like read out like a law bill? <laughs> like just like, I don't know. I, like what else do we want? I think this is fine for what it is, you know? Yeah. This week, Mac Miller, or should we say Mac Miller's estate, released more music. 
originally released in 2014, Mac's fan-favorite mixtape Faces will be re-released onto streaming platforms on October 15th. Apparently, the mixtape uses a bunch of samples from other artists, so it was hard to get it cleared to be streamed. So this week, his haunting single, Colors and Shapes, was re-released three years after his death alongside a brand new music video. So as well as the EP being able to be streamed, fans will also be able to buy vinyl copies of the album. Okay, Jazz, so how did you feel when you first saw his new single? Well, first of all, I'm, I am a Mac Miller fan, but I'm quite a new fan. Like I only probably started listening to him like 2016 so I didn't realize that this was a re-release I thought it was brand new music from the vault and I was like and I listened and like it's a very haunting song like the start is really kind of like choiry um so I was a bit like oh my god why are they re-releasing like unreleased music from these artists who have tragically died I'm so tired of it and you know I think I text you or we text each other like are you a Mac Miller fan? This is weird. But obviously <laughs> more research shows that it's an old album. What about you? Yeah, like I am a fan of his music, pretty late to the game as well, similar to you. Um, and when I first saw this pop up on my Spotify, the single, I was like, <gasps> like, oh my gosh. And it's also kind of deja vu because this isn't the first time it's happened, you know, because last year Mac Miller's Estee also released a posthumous album, Circles, which I bloody adored. But yeah, back to this um, single. It was quite a nice surprise. And I remember hearing his vocals um, in the track. It made me kind of kind of choke up and feel things because I think it's such an interesting, like, gray area of someone being dead but listening to something new by them Mm. or something that I personally hadn't heard before yeah and it is nice for fans to feel that they're still getting new music but it is such a gray area and I feel like it definitely made us want to explore it a bit more in terms of is posthumous releasing ethical so in terms of Mac he was working on Circle's just before his death um, of an accidental drug overdose in September 2018. And Circles was created to complement swimming. The record producer that Mac was working with, John Bryan, finished off the album based on his time and conversations with Mac. As a sidebar, John Bryan did the Lady Bird soundtrack, which is incredible. So, yeah, <laughs> just wanted to add that in. Very talented man. Um, and apparently Mac was meant to create a third album. It's going to be a trilogy, but sadly he never got to write that. But from the comments on Colors and Shapes music video, a lot of fans are just overjoyed to have new content. User Brax1100 said, Whoever is in charge of releasing Mac's music to his fans, thank you from the bottom of my heart for treating his art how it should be treated and making it feel as if he was still here with us all. We have seen lots of people's art get treated miserably after their passing, but you guys are the best example of how to treat an artist with respect. Another user said, let's commend Mac's family, team, friends, and whoever else has had a hand in not ruining Mac's legacy by putting out half-baked projects just for for a quick cash grab, actually handing his work with care. 
So, and I read a few articles and listened to a podcast today called The Posthumous Album Debate by NFR Podcast, and they actually said as well that Mac Miller's estate is probably one of the best examples of artists releasing music after their death, and the way they've done it is very respectful. But when we talk about posthumous release and artists, all I can think of is the Tupac Shakur hologram. Do you remember when that happened? So I don't because it was 2012. I do not remember this, but I did sneakily watch this on YouTube before we went on air and I was so shocked at how realistic it's creepy it was. looking, isn't it? It's like 10 years on and it's still, you know, it still holds up. At the time I was in year 11 and I remember when it happened and it was like the biggest news story Everyone was talking about it and what this meant for the music industry. But if you haven't seen it, go watch it. But basically at the 2012 Coachella Festival, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre were headlining and suddenly this hologram of Tupac Shakur, who was murdered in a drive-by shooting in 1996, rises from below the stage and it was honestly like seeing a ghost because it was unexpected. All the people in the crowd were like, what the hell? And uh-huh. it was such a feat of technology. The hologram cost nearly half a million dollars to make and other entertainers had used them before, but this was the first time a deceased person had been used in that setting and it sparked a lot of conversations. One article for MTV by James Montgomery in 2012 sums up the feelings, I think. They say, Part seance, part neo-necromancy, Holopak also almost certainly heralds the coming of a brave new era of revenue-grabbing, legacy-tarnishing spectacle. At the moment, beaming your favourite deceased star onto a stage night after night is probably cost-prohibitive, but soon it won't be. And once that final hurdle falls, how long until every hotel in Las Vegas is lining up their own digital Elvis Presleys, Michael Jackson's or John Lennon's for full-blown revenues? The mind boggles and, to be honest, the heart aches. They continue, and yes, I understand there is a market for all of this. The idea of seeing the Beatles or Jimi Hendrix live is appealing even to me. But if you care even the slightest bit about the legacies of your favorite artists, then you probably don't want their likenesses exploited for anything, let alone a borderline ghastly holodeck puppet show. And to be honest, the appeal of most great long gone artists lies in the fact that they are no longer with us. They are certainly timeless, yet they are also of a certain time. They define an era, an ethos, and they most certainly don't deserve to be resurrected or exploited. So that was nearly 10 years ago, and we haven't seen too many holograms. ABBA's new release, they're going to tour as holograms, but they're still alive. Like they had to get, um, you know, their faces digitized and stuff with all their consent. So that's a different conversation. But in 2018 at a Super Bowl, a hologram of Prince, the artist, was also scrapped because it came out after they'd kind of created it that he had described posthumous holograms as demonic. But interestingly, this posthumous album release phenomenon seems to be really popular in the hip-hop genre. Yeah, so other artists include Lil Peep, who was just 21 when he died of a drug overdose in 2017. 
because of his death, his fan base actually grew and his sales increased. So wildly, the first official posthumous release came just 24 hours after his death when a music video was released. And nearly every year since then, an album or single has been released. Like, what the hell? He was just 21. Mm. And another 21-year-old is Juice World. Um, he also sadly died of a drug overdose. But two months after his death, he was featured on Eminem's single Godzilla, and he since had albums released. So between those guys and Mac Miller, it begs the question of are these posthumous releases happening because there are drug addiction issues within this subculture and then these guys and people have so much work just sitting there ready to be released so their estate is just like, okay, let's just like pump it out because they had albums and albums worth of work sitting there compared to an older person who has released six, seven albums already. I find it so interesting and it's definitely not a question I can answer Mm. nor can you, I'm sure, but that's such an interesting take on it because, yeah, I haven't heard of many other artists who have done posthumous releases. I mean, Amy Winehouse, when she tragically died of alcohol poisoning at just 27 in 2011, um, she had one album that was released after her death, which was Lioness Hidden Treasures. It was described as a decade's worth of odds and ends by the singer. Mm. So with that Amy Winehouse estate, it's very interesting because the head of Amy's label, David Joseph, actually destroyed the rest of her demos as a, quote, moral thing, um, which I think is for the best because Amy was exploited yeah. to the ends of the earth when she was alive and she does not need any more in her death. And in more recent music, um, the ethics of posthumous albums are so fuzzy that artist Anderson Pack, who actually worked with Mac Miller, one of my favorite songs is Dang, the best. Yes. He good. debuted a new tattoo that read, when I'm gone, please don't release any posthumous albums or songs with my name attached. Those were just demos and never intended to be heard by the public. Yeah, and that message was also co-signed by Lana Del Rey, who shared the photo on Instagram, and she captioned the post with, it's in my will, but it's also on his tattoo. I think that's so sad that he has had to like tattoo that on his arm oh, because he knows how lucrative the music industry can be and he just assumes that all his demos will get you know from the vault whatever after his death that's like a big statement to make to like not just only have that in your will but to have that on your arm like I think it's definitely a conversation worth having in the music business not to be kind of dark but if you pass and someone went through your laptop and opened up your diary entries and started publishing them um on the internet you wouldn't be too happy would you so (laughs) so can definitely see where this is coming from we'll close this segment out with a quote from the face magazine by dean van nguyen which reads ultimately posthumous music is best presented as close to the artist's original vision as possible and with heavy contextualization that makes it clear what the fans are listening to still it's impossible to put structures in place to guarantee legacies are treated respectfully more artists might follow anderson pack in putting their wishes into permanent text in the music business the end is not always the end
Mags, what have you been reading, watching, listening to, loving, consuming, enjoying this week? <laughs> Oh my God, all the ing words. I've actually been consuming a lot of content, but today I am limiting myself to one recommendation and it is Only Murders in the Building, which is a TV show that has been released on Disney Plus and episodes are being released week um, by week at the moment. So it is a comedy mystery drama that stars Selena Gomez, Steve Martin and Martin Short. And it's about three strangers who live in the same apartment block who share a love of true crime podcasts, which I think is very fitting for our day and age. Um, A murder then happens in their own building, though, which encourages them to start a podcast um, for themselves, trying to uncover who did it. It feels really better talking (laughs) about, like, people who started a podcast, like, on a podcast, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, um, lies and mystery build throughout the season. It's a super fun and suspenseful watch, though it's um, it keeps you on your toes, but it's not scary, really. And, um, you know, I'm usually very <laughs> conscious of that. Um, I did want to bring up something else, though, because I think that the fashion element is such a delight. Um, in a Vulture article, costume designer Dana Kovarubius talks about how she mixes high fashion pieces with thrift store finds, which actually act as clues very subtly, apparently, as well as reflections of the character's emotional states. Yeah, so for instance, Steve Martin plays like a former TV star who's obsessed with like repetition and routine. So, quote, he's the kind of guy who wants to wear the same thing essentially every day, which he does. Selena Gomez's character is hiding like a secret, which is why she, quote, uses her clothing as armor. And Martin Short's character, who is a struggling theater director, has a bit of P.T. Barnum in him. So, you know, he might not be the greatest showman, but he knows how to get what he wants and uses his clothing to do it. So I just found that like a nice little tidbit too. So cool. I love when costume designers like talk to the media. I think Bridgerton is a good one. And um, the cast of Emma, the new movie, when they talk to like Vulture and stuff. It's so interesting and it just shows how much clothes communicate why I love writing about fashion. Yes. And I'm sure you feel the same way. It's like goes so much deeper than just being like, oh, that's a cute top. <laughs> um, exactly. But I yeah. have also been recommended this and I was going to start it tonight. So very funny that you recommended it today. Oh, it's so bingeable. Like I was going to watch one episode. They're pretty short, like 30 minutes. Okay. And like I watched all the available ones. I think you'll really enjoy it. Mm. Okay, and you, what are you going to be recommending for us this week? Surprise, surprise, I am recommending another podcast, third in a row. But I discovered this last night when I was looking through the podcast charts, definitely not trying to find our podcast. Um, (laughs) And I found this one and it caught my eye. It's called 912 and it is by Wondery slash Amazon Studios. Um, But basically, it is a documentary podcast series following the days, weeks, and years after 9-11. It starts off with this group of people who were filming a reality TV show um, where they were basically sent back to the 1800s and they are on a boat, no technology. They have to eat as if they were sailors in the 1800s, you know, salted pork, salted beef. Um, they're away for weeks and weeks and weeks and they are actually doing the Endeavour trip that James Cook did after he quote-unquote discovered Australia. <laughs> um, so they're travelling from Cairns up to Bali in August, September 2001. And when they're on the boat, 
is when 9-11 happens. So it starts off with that and like how those people kind of dealt with like being away from the world and then coming back to a world that's completely changed. Wow. Because you and I don't know the world before 9-11. Like I don't remember 9-11, have very few memories from before 2001. Um, Mm. And my parents talk about it in reference to COVID actually. They're like the last time something like this happened was 9-11 and that it changed like our whole lives. Yeah. And this series really showed me that. It's beautifully done and it weaves storytelling, interviews and emotions throughout each episode. And it's hosted by journalist and director Dan Taberski. And, yeah, basically discusses how 9-11 the day became 9-11 the idea and the ideology. And I think especially given it's the 20th anniversary this month, there's been so many documentaries created and, of course, it's important to remember, but I really enjoyed listening to this because it's not so much about the day itself and a play-by-play of, like, at 9.01 this happened and they collapsed at this time. It's really about the people and the days around it, so it felt way less voyeuristic because sometimes I just feel a bit slimy watching those documentaries about it. Like mm. I actually went to the 9-11 Museum in New York and it was so full on, but, like, it's just fascinating how, like, one day can change the course of history. Okay, we'll play a bit of the trailer here. I'm Dan Taberski. Do you want to hear my 9-11 story? Yeah, me neither. Because what I want to talk about is what happened on 9-12 and every day after that. This morning, less than 24 hours later, the signature of the New York skyline is no more. 9-12 is a documentary podcast about how we turned 9-11 the day into 9-11 the idea and how that idea was used to shape the next 20 years. I would recommend that if you're interested in how 9-11 changed the world rather than the trauma porn of the day itself. Whoa, good recommendation. Um, I have a tidbit that you might already know that kind of ties our two recommendations together. So 9-11 happened um, in the midst of New York Fashion Week. So what happened was a lot of these fashion reporters ended up being the ones first on scene and reporting about it. So no I found that beautiful to learn. How does that tie in with Only Murders in the Building? Sorry, I talked about fashion. Oh, well, <laughs> I talked about fashion. It's like, it's only about it's <laughs> a building set like, in New York, set in 9 11. <laughs> no, but. Um, no, that is yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. to bring up that. I didn't know that. Mm. That's really interesting. And I, it is good. And that's what I enjoyed about the museum is like, not enjoyed, that's not the right word, but found interesting is like hearing people's story from the day rather than all of the politics yes. and the xenophobia and everything that came afterwards. So, yeah. That's all for this week of Culture Club, but we've had a lot of fun talking to you all and I hope you enjoyed listening to this one. If you did, pretty please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can give us a star rating and also a little written review, which we would love. Thank you so much for listening. Follow us on at Culture Club Pod if you want more and otherwise we'll be speaking with you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.